This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. John Wilsey teaches both church history and philosophy at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He earned his academic degrees in those very areas, and prior to coming to Southern Seminary, he taught in the same fields and then most recently served at Princeton University as the William E. Simon Visiting Fellow in Religion and Public Life. That's a part of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton. He's the author of dozens of articles and several academic books, including One Nation Under God and American Exceptionalism and Civil Religion. He is most recently the author of God's Cold Warrior, The Life and Faith of John Foster Dulles. That book chronicles the interplay between religion and foreign policy in what we have to recognize as one of the most important epics in American history. Professor John Wilsey, welcome to Thinking in Public. Thanks so much for having me, Dr. Muller. So why? Why this book? Uh, there hasn't been much written on John Foster Dulles in uh, the better part of a half century. And uh, you're talking about events that began well over a century ago, and you're writing about the life and faith of a man who really wasn't known for having much of a faith. So how's that for an introduction to a new book? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting, Dr. Mueller. Um, John Foster Dulles is such an interesting contrast as a Secretary of State to uh, the Secretaries of State we've had since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. Uh, here's a guy who is um, uses a lot of religious rhetoric in framing his foreign policy uh, positions. He's also someone that's very relevant to us, I think, in terms of, uh, you know, America's place in the world in a post-Cold War uh, age. Well, Professor, as you look at John Foster Dulles, I think it's important to remind those uh, who are joining this conversation and listening to it that there once was a time when John Foster Dulles was amongst the, uh, say, 10 most important and powerful human beings that walked upon planet Earth. And, uh, and yet his name's now kind of receded into memory unless people are uh, taking off or landing in one airport in Washington, D.C. But I can tell you that I have been fascinated with John Foster Dulles my entire adult life, uh, simply because to me he represents one of those figures who actually did ride world events and drove world events. And uh, he and his brother, who became really the founder of the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, were the epitome of a certain class of Americans and a certain American caste system that really hasn't existed for, uh, for at least a half century, but used to rule the United States, almost like a hereditary aristocracy in the United Kingdom. Sure. Sure. I mean, Dulles is born in 1888. He dies in 1959. He has a full life. And, you know, his lifespan uh, sort of embraces that period in American history where America goes from being, you know, a continental power to being a superpower. Um, and, you know, so not only does his life embrace that period, but he, as you said, helps to shape uh, American, you know, American uh, history and American position in the world uh, post-World War II. Well, let's put it this way. John Foster Dulles was the third United States Secretary of State in one family within the period of 60 years. That's right. That's right. I mean, that, that's pretty, well, it's not just pretty astounding. That's unprecedented. 
it, it really is. You know, his church in Watertown, New York, where he grew up, his father was pastor there, First Presbyterian Church of New York, uh, Watertown, New York. They take a lot of pride in continuing to, you know, boast that they are the only church in the United States from which a uh, you had two secretaries of state emerge, as well as a head of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, they carry that with great pride even today. Okay, so but, but lay this out for us. People don't know the story, and that's why you wrote this book. Tell them the story. So how, how did you end up with three secretaries of state from one family in such a short amount of time? Well, as I said, John Foster Jones was born in 1888. He was born in Washington, D.C. He was born inside the home of his grandfather, John Watson Foster, his maternal grandfather, who had been secretary of state under Benjamin Harrison uh, in 1892 and 1893. Uh, so his, yeah, his mother's, his mother's family were dip, uh, diplomats. You now you have John Watson Foster, who had been Secretary of State under Benjamin Harrison. You had his uncle, Robert Lansing, who was also on his mother's side, who was Secretary of State from 1915 to 1920 under Woodrow Wilson. But then on his father's side, his father was a pastor, um, theologian, was pastor in uh, for about ten years in Detroit, and he was pastor at Watertown First Presbyterian Church from 1880, 1880, uh, 1887 until 1914, or excuse me, 1904, and so on that side you have uh, and then also a Presbyterian heritage. And they kind of meet, they sort of join together in John Foster Dulles. When he comes of age, you know, he goes to Princeton University and uh, he matriculates in 1904, he graduated in 1908. He received his law degree from George Washington Law School in 1912. He, he was hired at Sullivan and Cromwell, very, uh, you know, very important, very significant international law firm in Manhattan. He went to that law firm in 1911. Same year he got married, and he was um, managing partner of Sullivan and Cromwell from 1926 until he retired in 1949. He served on the Federal Council of Churches uh, during the Second World War. He uh, was also deeply involved in the formation of the United Nations. He attended the first, second, third, and fifth uh, meetings of the General Assembly. He um, he also. Um, uh, negotiated the peace treaty with Japan that concluded diplomatically concluded World War II in the Pacific. Uh, that was that treaty was ratified in 1952, and then of course he served as Secretary of State from 1953 to his death in 1959 under Eisenhower. So as you said, John Foster Dulles, uh, I, I write in the book, stands astride uh, diplomacy in the world in the Cold War like a colossus. Uh, I can't really think of of, of another figure. Um, you know, in the diplomatic arena that uh, stands uh, above John Foster Dulles, certainly, uh, certainly during the 1950s. And I think we really have to underline, we're talking about diplomacy. We're actually talking about the affairs of the world, because in this case, diplomacy is not about the niceties of sending ambassadors here and there. It's about world war, uh, the reconstruction of civilization. It's about the definition of human rights. Uh, it's about uh, the, 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 Victory or defeat of Western civilization. I mean, we're, we're not we're not just talking about diplomacy in the sense of uh, of uh, formal exchanges between governments. We're talking about decisions about 
whether there is war or not, uh, where, which uh, government is actually to be recognized as legitimate, whether or not sovereignty is, a, is a, actually an applicable national uh, concept and, and claim. Uh, I want to go back, though, to something, and that is that I, I began by talking about the amazing character of this class, and I want us to think about that because I, I think that's a radical distinction to the United States that we know. But there once was a time when a rarefied, uh, very rarefied group of uh, families basically descended from the Mayflower families and, uh, and a few others who, who really did provide the Brahmin, you might say, aristocracy of the United States. Just to give a little bit of background here, um, it was often said that the, uh, the greatest check, the most profound check upon the potential tyranny of an English king was the perpetual power of 200 families distributed through the nation. And that was the nobility. And, and, and by the way, they were, they were uh, armed uh, families. And, uh, but, but basically, you can look today, and uh, you look at all the titles spread throughout the hereditary titles in Britain, and a lot of them go back to those 200 families. In the United States, it was actually a smaller number of families. But uh, in one sense, John Foster Douglas was born into two of them, which was often the case. You had a merging of two of these families. And so you're really talking about the fact that he was one of the last of the kind of hereditary uh, leaders of the United States in that sense. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And it's really amazing. You know, when he was at George Washington Law School, he lived with his grandparents, the Fosters. And, you know, uh, to read his diaries uh, from those years uh, when he was a student at, at, at law school, George Washington Law School, it's a pretty charmed existence that he has even before he's a well-known quantity because of his family line. You know, uh, one of the people, one of the, the young ladies that he courted and, and, um, and you can definitely see had, had a great deal of romantic interest in was Helen Taft. And he writes, uh, he writes these entries about how beautiful she was. And the daughter of a president. That's right, the daughter of William Howard Taft. And they would go, like, he, he went to her coming out party that was held at the home of Oliver Wendell Holmes. And, and these kinds of uh, encounters and, and contacts were just sort of like, you know, he, he just, uh, they were sort of commonplace. Uh, they were rather quotidian for him. Yeah, to kind of uh, fast forward to something that really isn't in your book, because it, it's later in impact. One of the big historic uh, meanings of the Kennedy family is that uh, Joseph P. Kennedy, the patriarch of that family, was determined to show that an Irish immigrant family could emulate that same uh, social status and access. And uh, of course, uh, having his son become the first uh, Irish Catholic president, first Catholic president of any kind, but specifically coming from an Irish Catholic background, president of the United States, uh, that was the, a great achievement of the family. Uh, but becoming the United States ambassador to the court of St. James, uh, which Joseph P. Kennedy, the father, held, in many ways that rattled the establishment a lot more uh, because it was not the Joseph P. Kennedys who were appointed to that kind of position, but it was the John Foster Dulleses. Right. Right. And then when Kennedy goes and visits uh, Ireland uh, yes. just months before his assassination, that was electric, you know. Right. Um, and, and you can understand why. I think I, I, I think all of us, uh, you don't have to be Irish to appreciate the uh, the sense of uh, pride that Ireland had uh, in the fact that not only had one of its sons done well, 
Uh, Joseph P. Kennedy did well financially, but uh, that's quite a different thing uh, by his own reputation than the reputation of his son as president of the United States. But there was a class structure. You know, we have all kinds of issues about um, caste and class being discussed in 21st century America in a very different context. But uh, it's at least important to remember that there once was really an official caste system, and it was very hard for anyone to break into it. Those families generally did not want their sons and daughters to marry outside of that circle. And uh, they, they had very privileged schools. They, by the way, they were definitively Protestant. And, and that was not just a theological statement. In fact, I'd argue they weren't theological enough. Uh, but it was, a, it was a, a statement of the fact that, uh, that Roman Catholics were shut out of this system. And so were the so-called sectarians, which would have included uh, both of us as Baptists. Uh, Presbyterians were the lower end of that caste system. Right, right. You know, what's interesting, too, Dr. Mueller, is that, you know, Dulles, John Foster Dulles comes from sort of, a, on the one hand, you know, a provincial sort of North Country, New York background. He grows up in the country, grows up in the middle of nowhere, really. It's genteel yeah. country, though, let's be clear. Sorry? It's genteel country. It is. It is that. But, you know, he doesn't go to, he doesn't go to Groton. He doesn't go to an elite, you know, boarding school. But on the other hand, you know, he does come from, like you said, I mean, this sort of American aristocracy. And it's interesting, when he runs for... Uh, he, you know, he he went into the Senate after uh, Robert Wagner, Senator Robert Wagner, uh, fell ill, and he was appointed to that uh, to fill that vacant Senate seat by Governor Thomas Dewey, and he filled that Senate seat from uh, July and uh, you know through through no November as the uh, senator from New York. And while he was a senator from New York, you know, his colleagues in the Senate didn't really know you know how to whether or not to accept him into their club or not. But then on the other hand, too, when he ran for the special, when he ran for the seat in the special election that November, he ran against Herbert Lehman, who was Jewish. And Herbert Lehman won that election very narrowly, uh, largely because accusations of uh, Dulles being an anti-Semite stuck. Even though, he, of course, he denied it and everything else. Uh, those those accusations of being an anti-Semite were, you know, they were they were powerful accusations. But that class, let's let's be honest, that class uh, was uh, was fairly anti-Semitic, at least in terms of its socialization, if not in terms of its ideology. Uh, I, I will simply say at that point that uh, they they basically tried to keep everybody out, and uh, that, uh, that would include uh, that would include the two of us, as I say, as well as uh, Catholics. And, uh, and Jewish citizens as well. It, it, we're in America that's so different now. And uh, in an America in which, I mean, we've had many presidents elected over the course of the last 60 or 70 years who come from very different backgrounds than, uh, than used to become American presidents. And of course, it was never uniform. Consider both, well, just to say, Andrew Jackson, uh, who definitely did not come from that cast, Abraham Lincoln, who definitely didn't come from that caste, but in a sense, there was a return to it uh, with kind of a patrician class, and it certainly included figures such as the Roosevelts, uh, by definition, a part of that Dutch aristocracy in the United States, and, uh, and people like Wilson. And it's a reminder of the fact that that northern aristocracy had uh, southern homes and uh, often married southern girls. 
and so you had a you had a uh, a fusion of these uh, uh, of these power structures. But there's a theological aspect to this, and and you know as much as I w- would love to talk about John Foster Dulles simply because of the events uh, of his life. I mean, this this was someone who, as a very very young man, was really deeply involved in Wilson's attempt to build a League of Nations. I mean, in a way that can't be explained by anything other than divine providence. Frankly, that he w- he was in those rooms and actually had a had a, a role to contribute to uh, to Wilsonian diplomacy going all the way back. And of course, the fact that his, uh, his close relative was Secretary of State had something to do with it. But nonetheless, you, then, then you fast forward and you realize this guy was everywhere. He's the, he's the Forrest Gump of 20th century American history. You can't look anywhere and he's, and without him being in the room. That is uh, so true. That is so yeah. true. It's fascinating. He, he is. He's everywhere. Uh, and such a young man, too. He's such a young man. He gets uh, appointed to the uh, Reparations Commission at Versailles. That was actually in spite of his connection to Robert Lansing. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as you know, uh, Woodrow Wilson was not a big fan of uh, Robert Lansing because he thought Robert Lansing was going to steal the show at Versailles, and right. Wilson wanted to kind of run things. Lansing thought he was too, by the way. <laughs> and that's that's yes. exactly right. So he he received that commission because of his connection to Bernard Baruch, yeah. who was a friend of his grandfather. Yeah. Right, going right back to that money connections. Yes, that's right. Yep. So, so when he goes to the reparations committee, I mean, the guy is only—I mean, he's in his uh, what? He's in his late twenties, early thirties, and you know, he becomes friends with uh, John Maynard Keynes uh, on that commission. Other people like Norman Davis. In fact, there's John Foster Dulles and Norman Davis, the two of them writing the text of Article Two Thirty One of the Versailles Treaty, the War Guilt Clause. Going to be one of the most important background causes to the Second World War. So there he is, right there in the center. As of the John action. Maynard Keynes, by the way, famously had pointed out. That's right. That's exactly right. Um, uh, you know, and and Wilson Wilson asked him to stay on at Versailles after he departed and went back to the States. He personally asked uh, John Foster Dulles to stay there because he trusted him. Wrote him a handwritten letter uh, requesting him to stay in Versailles and kind of. Uh, mop things up. And um, Foster sent that letter back to his wife uh, with a note that said, check this out. You know, he, he received this this personal right. letter from right. Well, you fast forward to say the, uh, the reason why we talk about John Foster Dulles today. He was Secretary of State in the Eisenhower years, at least most of them, and uh, really helped to create the post-war order as we know it. But what I want to talk to you about is uh, something that uh, will make Secretary of State have to wait and is, is my main interest because when you look at John Foster Dulles, you're looking at a theological type as well. And a theological type that had an outsized influence in American religious life and still does in American Christianity if it is uh, mostly important for demonstrating why especially that uh, model of American Christianity is so much in eclipse and retreat. Uh, John Foster Dulles was a theological liberal, and his father was a theological liberal. So put that into context for me. Sure. Yeah. His father was a liberal. He was a liberal. So the, the one, uh, I think the one, uh, you know, uh, period in his life, Foster's life, that kind of brings into, con- into very stark uh, relief his uh, liberal commitments was during the Presbyterian controversy. 
Uh, as, well, just you know, hold on, if, if you don't mind, tell us about the dad. To establish his father's theological identity here. Yeah, so his father um, studied in Europe, studied in Germany, uh, received a, a, a PhD uh, in theology um, at the University of Berlin. He um, came back to the States as a Presbyterian minister, uh, sort of committed to liberal theology. So, so at so, Berlin, and, and forgive me for interrupting, but uh, the, the, it's just, it's it's necessary for us to set the stage here that in Berlin, which wasn't the origin of theological liberalism in Germany, but it did become the capital of it. And you had figures such as Adolf von Harnach and others who who argued that Orthodox Christianity was just uh, the uh, the the forced combination of uh, Jewish theology and Hellenism and, and Greek philosophy. Uh, you had you had people openly calling the Bible, nothing more than ancient Near Eastern literature and, and denying the supernatural. And, and it was out of that uh, context that John Foster Dulles's father came to ministry. Right. His father writes a book in 1907 uh, called The True Church, and he contrasted what he called the evangelic churches, uh, Presbyterianism um, being sort of the paragon with, with the Roman Catholic model. Um, hierarchical, authoritarian, uh, and heavy-handed. And he said that the true church were the evangelic traditions, um, especially uh, marked by Presbyterianism and Lutheranism. Um, and the uh, hierarchical uh, denominations were the false churches, right? And, you know, and another thing about um, his father, his father, you know, he became a, the a theologian on a, on a faculty at Auburn Theological Seminary in Auburn, New York, starting in 1904, the same year that Foster went to Princeton, and he remained there until his death in 1931. Um, he was professor of theism and apologetics. And, you know, consistently, um, Alan Macy Dulles, his Reverend Dulles, his father, he uh, detached the transcendent from the eminent. For him, it was all eminent. Um, you know, he was a liberal post-millennial. Again, he, very German. Very German. The essence of German liber uh, Protestant liberalism. Sure, sure. Very, very much so. And, you know, rejecting, um, you know, Augustine's um, uh, division between city of God and city of man, instead seeing, you know, the two of these two, it, it, the city of God and the city of man are not separate and they're not opposed to one another. They're the same, right? Um, so, so Dulles grows up in that, you know, in that culture, in that context. His father preaches three times on Sundays. Uh, he, he's there, you know, he grows up in that world. And during the Presbyterian controversy, he and his father are writing letters back and forth to each other where his father, you know, is coaching uh, his son to uh, how to, you know, how to reject, you know, the, the five points of fundamentalism uh, that were becoming, uh, you know, the points of controversy during that time. Well, that controversy has to be explained. So and, and by the way, the religion of uh, uh, Alan Macy uh, Dulles and of John Foster Dulles was basically what the Germans called culture Protestantism. So it was basically that all the theological and, uh, and doctrinal impulses were directed into the improvement of society. But behind that was the understanding of a moral law. It wasn't the denial of the existence of God, but God's basic function was to provide a moral law and then to trust that uh, human beings could, uh, could bring in the kingdom uh, in the name of Christ uh, by cultural engagement and action. But it turns out that the Presbyterian controversy wasn't even sparked by a, by a Presbyterian. 
the Presbyterian controversy was sparked by a Baptist, and uh, I will say one of the most infamous Baptists of all time, Harry Emerson Fosdick. Uh, When I teach theology, uh, and uh, frankly, even when I teach apologetics, I just have to go back to, to Harry Emerson Fosdick over and over again, because he's one of the most honest theological liberals who ever existed. He was just absolutely blatant in denying most of the supernatural. He just he, his theory was, as the theory of liberalism always has been, that Christianity has to change with the times, and the times were anti-supernatural. People don't believe in a virgin birth. People don't believe in the parting of the Red Sea. People don't believe in this. Just like Rudolf Bultmann in Germany said, people don't believe in heaven and hell. They do believe in turning a light switch on and off. Uh, and, and so you know, it, it's this. Um, it's this anti-supernaturalism, and, and it's not just that, but Harry Emerson Fosdick was the preacher at the First Presbyterian Church. And, and so, as, an, as strange as that sounds, all this was sparked—it uh, wasn't created by, but it was sparked by a Baptist preacher in the First Presbyterian Church pulpit in New York City, declaring that the great enemy of the church was not apostasy, but fundamentalism. Exactly right. His sermon titled, Shall the Fundamentalists Win, right? So define the and, fundamentalists uh, and lay out the conflict. Right. So, so what, what Fosdick was, was attacking in that sermon were, you know, the five points, the so-called five points of fundamentalism, which, which were actually deli- doctrinal deliverances to the Presbyterian Church in 1910 and again in 1916. And so there's an acrostic that I like to kind of use, and I, and I teach my students this in church history too, the acrostic for the five points of fundamentalism is Marvin, right? So you have M, uh, the historicity of miracles, right? The A stands for substitutionary atonement of Christ. The R stands for bodily resurrection of Christ. The V, of course, you probably guessed it, right? The virgin birth. Uh, The I and the N stand for the inerrancy of scripture. Um, so I didn't I didn't get those for myself. Those are those are from uh, Molly Worthen. That's that's an acrostic she she uh, made up, and I I think that's very helpful. Uh, but those those five um, points of fundamentalism were specifically what Fosick was going after, and not only those doctrinal uh, statements, but also um, he you know rejected the idea that these things were obligatory. Right, which just to to interrupt here, they were obligatory. Uh, They were a part of the standards for the Presbyterian ministry. And so it wasn't as if these issues weren't defined. Presbyterians said, these are the requirements for anyone who will accept ordination uh, in the the Presbyterian church. So this was fundamentalism, as Fosdick denied it, and as both the Dulleses sought to fight, Fundamentalism was basically a matter of holding Presbyterians to the very standards that they had adopted. So what's the argument against that? Dulles' argument against that was not so much against the uh, the doctrines, although he did deny the virgin birth, and uh, he, he was rather doctrinally uh, illiterate uh, by his own admission uh, later in his life. It wasn't so much that, you know, it was about the doctrines. It was for Dulles, he wanted to go against the modernists. His strategy for arguing against the uh, moder- uh, arguing against the fundamentalists was to stress constitutionalism, uh, to go strictly by the Presbyterian form of government, right? So it was unconstitutional, Dulles said, uh, for the General Assembly to compel uh, 
doctrinal uh, um, fidelity to the doctrinal deliverances of 1910 and 1916. Unless all the presbytery, all the presbyteries in the nation had consented to those doctrinal deliverances, uh, then um, it was wrong for a uh, for the General Assembly to deny the licensure or the ordination of someone who denied, say, the virgin birth. And so that was his argument. And he, um, you know, he had three phases of involvement in the Presbyterian controversy from 1924 to 1926. In the first phase, uh, I argue that he had, you know, Dulles had sort of a partial victory and a partial loss. Um, in that particular phase, he defended Harry Emerson Fosdick uh, from being, you know, removed from, from his position. He was not removed, um, but the Judicial Commission uh, said, well, Fosdick, you're a Baptist. You need to, you know, not be a Baptist, and you just need to become a Presbyterian. And he didn't do that, and so he, you know, he quit the, the church. Um, the, the, the second phase and the third phase were over licensure issues. Right. And th th those really aren't, uh, aren't as germane. The important point is that uh, this is how mainline Protestant denominations were lost to heresy. I mean, just uh, the bottom line, this is how theological orthodoxy collapsed. It, it collapsed, A, because of a lack of will. It, it, it collapsed, B, because relationships were more important than the truth. And it collapsed, C, because they began to define themselves in terms of the rules of their denomination rather than what the church through the centuries had called the rule of faith. And uh, you give that up. And I mean, these guys, they, uh, they gave away the store. They did. They did. You know, by the time Dulles is finished with his involvement, he, he has achieved complete victory, right, from the modern side. And, uh, you know, it results in the formation of the OPC, uh, new mission organizations, um, you know, the, uh, the founding of Westminster uh, Seminary. So, yeah, it, 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 uh, it, is, it is a point of no return. You know, and, by, and, and by the way, it wasn't just that the liberals won. It's that the liberals kicked out the conservatives. Now, I mean, constitutionally, some would claim, well, they weren't really kicked out, but they, they were about to be. Uh, because if, it, I mean, given Dulles's argument, if uh, the, the great enemy of the church is not heresy, it's, uh, it's uh, anyone who would want to kick anyone out for heresy. So, Which is ironic because that's what Harry Emerson Fosdick argued that the fundamentalists were trying to do to the modernists. Right. And it turned right. out that that's exactly what the modernists did to the fundamentalists. That's right. And, of course, one of the great observers of all of this, who was also a participant in a different arena, was uh, J. Gresham Machen, who did start Westminster Seminary, and famously and rightly said in his book Christianity and Liberalism, we're not talking about two variants of a religion. We're talking about two different religions, Christianity, religion number one, liberalism, Religion number two, but liberalism fit the the times. It fit the uh, the class of which he was a part, uh, a class that did not want to be defined theologically, but wanted to be defined in terms of secular norms. And uh, and John Foster Dulles, I guess this is one of the most embarrassing things to me. Just reading as much as I've read about uh, John Foster Dulles and studied him over time, um, this is the most arrogant worldview I could imagine. You know, liberals accuse the conservatives of arrogance and claiming the truth, but the same thing's true actually on both sides. Uh, it, it, but, and, and by the way, the, the, the conservative who's holding to scriptural authority just has to say, well, you know, as much as possible, this is not about me. 
It's it's about the scripture. But when it came to uh, Dulles and his cast, they had a vision of the world that was they felt superior to any other vision, and they were basically willing to do anything to see it come to pass. Yeah, that's right. I think you see that uh, very clearly in um, in you know Dulles's involvement with the Oxford Ecumenical Conference in 1937. Um, and you see that uh, sort of banishment of transcendence, uh, the emphasis on imminence, and, and the by that you really mean that uh, they it was, it's not just the transcendence of God that is downplayed. It's the fact that it's really classical theism, including oh, yeah. claims of divine revelation and uh, and active divine sovereignty in the world. Oh, exactly, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, by then, you know, Scripture has lost all of its authority, and what has taken its place? Well, you mentioned it a, a few minutes ago, the moral law, which is the ultimate authority. And for Dulles, the moral law is going to frame his entire imagination during his years as, uh, serving as Secretary of State and earlier as the Cold War. Okay, so John, I want to put John Foster Dulles on trial. The Soviets right. did, by the way. And uh, they would have done it for all the wrong reasons. But uh, I want to put John Foster Dulles on trial, and you are his trial attorney. Oh, boy. I just want to turn to John Foster Dulles and say, what moral law? He, he, would, he would answer that by defining it in operational, pragmatic terms. I'm, I'm waiting. Okay, so his view of the world, his view of reality is, he used to say this all the time, that the dynamic prevails over the static. So the change is uh, kind of the fundamental rule of all of life. But well, the that's one Hegel. That's not a moral law. One exception to that is the moral law. When God created the universe, mm-hmm. he established it as a moral system. And you see sort of the same operation of the moral law affected through the physical laws, through the laws of nature. So one of the things I write about in my book is is his love of nature, his love of sailing, his love of fishing. Um, But that doesn't say, I I understand that. But my point is, Mr. Dulles, you have never answered the question about what's moral about a moral law. Well, what's moral about a moral law, I think that that he would say would be the ethical teaching of Christ as, you know, summarized in Matthew 5, let your light shine before men in order that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. For him, he quoted that verse all the time. So how do we know what a good work is? (laughs) A good work is that which is uh, self-sacrificing. A good work is that which is um, uh, meant for the benefit of others, Um, sort of the fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man sort of ethic. Uh, a universalized, uh, you know, uh, brotherhood of man, um, cooperation, cooperation between individuals, churches, and then all the way up to nations, um, moral as in the rule of just law, and the knowledge of right and wrong, which is universal, right? So something like the way Kant might have argued, um, a categorical imperative, a sense of right and wrong that is inherent in every human being, um, which is going to be brought forth in the ethical teachings of Jesus. So let me just say, uh, so Mr. Secretary, uh, I, I will press my case in another context, but uh, what you've basically done is to make the world safe for people who think just as you think. 
it'd be a wonderful world filled with sailing ships and wonderful people and Sunday afternoon parties. But how exactly you actually intend to translate that into real life uh, remains to be seen. Uh, and 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 it's it's just theologically vacuous. And uh, and that's that's the that's the problem with the what Alistair McIntyre called the Enlightenment project. It, it ends up with this entire superstructure of of morality that's not standing on anything. And uh, so now let's uh, let me just leave my prosecution of the secretary and and come to you and say, you know, when when you look at this, I have a hard time with John Foster Dulles figuring him out because. On the one hand, you do have this abstract mindedness. On the other hand, you have a calculating cold warrior because when he was Secretary of State, it was in the what was then one of the hottest periods of the Cold War, a titanic struggle between the West and the Soviet Union for the domination of the world and for influence globally. Uh, he was no pushover as Secretary of State. That's right. But at the same time, you know, he's accused of being an, a, a, a priest of nationalism. Mark Toulouse in his book, The Transformation of John Foster Dulles, says that he's a priest of nationalism. And, and I really, I, I, I love that book. It's a very well-argued book. And, um, you know, I appreciate that scholarship, but I, I disagree with Toulouse's ultimate conclusion. Um, the way that Dulles defines nationalism in the 30s, uh, when he is at the height of his internationalist sort of, you know, idealism, um, you know, he, he defines nationalism as, as, as worship of the nation, the deification of the state. You know, and even in the 50s, Dulles is not ever really doing that. He still argues in the same way that he always has. Well, he's profoundly not doing it. I mean, he, he, he saw the threat of Nazi Germany and the actual attempted deification of the state. Uh, but, he, but he did, see, I mean, here's the issue, and here's, here's, here's the problem with uh, the the historical i'll just say this as a conservative this is the historical pragmatic problem with liberalism is that um it uh it creates a situation in which um the high mindedness uh, it has to be violated by the very same people once they take responsibility oh wow that's 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 true that's true um you know he he has an encounter with his old friends from the fcc in 1955 the Federal where, Council of Churches. Yeah, the Federal Council of Churches, yeah. So people like Samuel M. Cabert, um, you know, people like uh, G. Oxnum Bromley, people like that. They, uh, there were about a half dozen of them that gathered in his home in 1955. They had dinner. Uh, they sat around his study. And they, um, they kind of were hard on him. They said, you know, you've changed. Um, you, you're no longer the high-minded idealist of the, of the 30s and 40s. Now you're, you're a nationalist. Um, and, uh, you know, John Foster Dulles listened to their objections, um, but you're right, that insight that you just pointed out, uh, it, really, it really is seen in that encounter, because now John Foster Dulles is not sitting uh, from a, a, in, a, in a, you know, a comfortable armchair, uh, just being a, a world order theorist. Now, now he's a policymaker. Now he's responsible uh, for uh, American foreign policy. And now we're dealing with nuclear weapons, which, of course, they weren't dealing with in the 30s and 40s, in early 40s. And when, when he has the responsibility of Secretary of State as a policymaker, the calculus has changed now. And so, yeah, you do have an accounting for some of that change as a result of the fact that he is now a responsible policymaker. But a John Ray could not come up with a better plot than the reality of this period, because you end up with John Foster Dulles 
serving Dwight Eisenhower, five-star general, supreme commander of Allied forces in Europe, um, and the president who had to define the Cold War uh, during his, his eight years in office. Uh, you had John Foster Dulles as his secretary of state. You had his brother as the international master of the dark arts, as uh, the founder of what is now the Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, what must family reunions have been like in that family? You know, in Foster and Alan, Alan Dulles, the CIA head, they were very, they were very close. Um, it's interesting, some of their family dynamics. Alan Dulles was always the little brother. You can always see they're, they're close, um, but, but Alan always defers to his older brother. Who, by the, the way, was not coincidentally, given all of his years as managing partner in an international law firm, was fabulously rich, which his brother was not. Right, and his brother was also a partner at that same law firm, too, which is interesting. Um, his brother was not. One of the reasons why his brother was not was his brother was, um, well, he had a different personality than Foster, right? He was a bon vivant, you know, a pipe-smoking, sort of womanizing uh, figure who liked his uh, liked his the finer things in life. Whereas Dulles, he had high tastes, but he also enjoyed getting a free haircut as a senator in the Senate building. Well, <laughs> let's uh, let's just say that the greatest line, and I, you know how much I love Winston Churchill, who did not love John Foster Dulles. The greatest line about John Foster Dulles was simply when Churchill was asked for his estimation of the American Secretary of State, and Churchill simply responded, "Dull." Duller, Dulles. <laughs> That's right. And the only person I know that can carry, the only bull I, that, that carries his own china shop with him. That's right. That's right. And, and let's face it, uh, there, there's so many things going on here. Like I say, John Lickery could not come up with better than this. So when, when Alan, excuse me, when John Foster Dulles was uh, managing partner in probably the leading international law firm based in New York City, he had prominent Nazis as clients. He did. I mean, prominent Nazis as clients. And he himself was on the board of, uh, for example, um, um, I'm drawing a blank on the name of the outfit, Farben, I believe is what it, what it IG is. IG Farben. I, yeah, that's right. Uh, IG Farben. He was on the board of IG, IG Farben, which produced uh, chemical agents for poison gas. Uh, he was also on the board of uh, International Nickel Corporation, which which produced armor for German tanks. Um, he didn't close uh, Sullivan and Cromwell's offices until 1935, and he only did so because all the partners were in open rebellion against him, including his brother, Alan, who demanded that he close Ber the Berlin offices. And he was forced to, if he hadn't, those partners would have gone and formed a rival law, law firm. But like I said, this is like Alan first. It's uh, it, it's like fiction, a and then you bring that all the way down to the the period of the Eisenhower administration and the early Kennedy administration for Alan Dulles, and uh, I mean you're really talking about some of the most uh, I don't know the Bay of Pigs. I mean you're 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 talking about just about every major event. That's why. So uh, I went back. Go back to Forrest Gump. It's not just John Foster Dulles. You put John Foster Dulles together with Alan Dulles, and they are just about everywhere. And <clears throat> they, uh, they they represented, as you say, two very different personalities, but they also represent that cast that I was talking about that has now largely disappeared. It hasn't completely disappeared. So, for instance, the current Secretary of State, 
Anthony Blinken, appointed by uh, uh, Joe Biden. I mean, he does come from something like that kind of a background, uh, although it includes uh, very prominent Jewish people. So it, it shows you how that that uh, that class of leadership and international influence has changed uh, somewhat. Uh, it would not have included uh, uh, Jewish uh, uh, participants back, uh, say, in the early 20th century, but it certainly certainly would now, and uh, and and uh, many others as well. But uh, it is it, still a certain kind of preparation. So, by the way, you mentioned that uh, John Foster Dulles didn't go to Groton or uh, Choate Hall or you know schools like that, and and yet, yet someone condescendingly from the top of that class would say, "Well, young Mister Dulles didn't have to." Uh, it's it's the people on the lower rungs who have to go to those schools in order to show that they are a part of that meritocracy and, and all the rest. So it's just fascinating to look at this, both for what continues in American history and what doesn't. But, you know, your book is really interesting, I think, for attempting, and this is the second book, attempting to talk about John Foster Douglas and his faith, and there just wasn't much. Yeah, that's right. And that's one of the frustrating things about John Foster Dulles is, you know, with with all of his rhetoric. And I, I do believe that he believed what he was saying. I, I don't think that his rhetoric was simply utilitarian. I do believe he believed. But his rhetoric was so full of religiosity all the time. It, it, it gets uh, tiresome to read because it's like he repeats himself. And it appears again. sanctimonious from a distance. That's right. And yet... As you said, there's just not very much there in the way of foundation, right? So someone like Mark Toulouse can write an entire book on a mere 13 years of his life, 1937, 1950, and say that the man has a change from prophet of realism to priest of nationalism. And, and again, well, I think that that's, uh, I don't uh, agree with uh, Toulouse's uh, thesis all, to, all, you know, all the way. I don't go with him all the way. You know, there there is substance to that to that critique. I think that part of that critique is is lodged in the fact that he lacked a deep theological doctrinal set of commitments to base his moral theories on. And see, John, I want to tell you, uh, I think that's in many ways the importance of your book. Which, by the way, I just want to commend again. It's 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 a good read, and uh, the readers of your book come to understand. All the issues we've been talking about here, and, and uh, maybe if they didn't before, they can. I think biography, historical biography, is a fantastic way to get into it because you come to understand how this life made sense from the late 19th century, you know, going all the way through uh, the hottest years of the Cold War, right up to the brink of the Kennedy years. Uh, but you also see, and I'm a theologian, so I mean, you also see that at the end of the day, those who were committed to theological liberalism at the beginning of the 20th century came to the middle point of the century, and what they were holding was an empty bag. Um, you know, because what they wanted to do was to keep some kind of morality while surrendering the, uh, the hard doctrines, as they would call them, of, of Christianity. But th there's another point here, and that is that um, there are historians right now in, in the 21st century who are trying to kind of resurrect uh, or rehabilitate the, uh, the legacy of, of people like John Foster Dulles by arguing that even though they could not maintain the Protestant mainstream forever, they did perpetuate it for maybe 40 or 50 years beyond where it would have collapsed in the 1920s. And, you know, there's an interesting argument to be made there. 
but that presumes that the effort is to try to hold something institutionally together, even though there's no truth, you know, that comprises its purpose. Uh, I'll give them credit. I think in some ways they did cut a deal that uh, perpetuated the Protestant mainstream for another 50 years. It did get them. I mean, the, the, they surrendered any kind of theological orthodoxy in the 1920s, but their numerical decline didn't really show up catastrophically until the 1970s. So, yeah, credit where credit is due. You perpetuated your institution for a half century. But at the end of the day, that, uh, that collapse was massive. As Christ said, the fall of that house was very great. Um, and I think it's a warning to evangelical Christians today. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Not only was it a, a widespread collapse, it's permanent. It's permanent. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that's something that is uh, really tragic, a, a tragic element, I think, in, in Foster's life. Uh, and ironic, too, you know, when he's on his deathbed in April of 1959, he died on May 24th of 59. You know, he's laying in his deathbed surrounded by his wife and his family. And he wants uh, them to sing him the hymns that he grew up with uh, as a as a child. Um, some of his favorite hymns, "Work for the Night Is Coming," <laughs> uh, which is a title of the chapter to one of uh, one of my chapters in the book. It's also a post millennialist theme. Absolutely, they're mm -hmm. all they're all sort of these liberal kind of hymns. But um, you know, it's the spacious firmament on high. Um, uh, gosh, I'm you know, he he had several favorites um, and. So in that sense, he was very pious. You know, he sort of, he had these sort of private inner devotional elements to his faith. Um, but again, they were, they were grounded in either faulty theology or an understanding of Christianity that was only operative, only pragmatic, and, uh, and not doxological, not dedicated to the glory of God, as, of course, Calvin uh, was completely dedicated to in his institutes for the Christian, of the Christian religion. So this is always an interesting question to ask an author, but at the end of this project, were you glad you began it? Oh yeah, yeah. He was a fascinating figure yeah. to to study. Uh, my family and I uh, went together uh, to all the major places of his life. Yeah. We went to Watertown, saw this church, is where he grew up. We we actually traveled out to Duck Island, the island that he owned out in the middle of it's Lake not easy Ontario. To get to. I'm sorry, it's not easy to get to. No, no. We had to hire a, uh, a Canadian fisherman to take us out there. It was a two and a half hour uh, cruise out to the uh, out to the island. Um, the island itself is is beautiful. Um, it's mostly inhabited by snakes now, <laughs> but it is beautiful, and you can see his attraction to it. Um, of course, I spent a year at Princeton, just uh, you know, just a, a half a mile or so from where he lived, uh, about a half a mile from where. His uncle lived, who was the librarian of Princeton Theological Seminary for, for many, many years. So we were sort of immersed, not just me, but my whole family. We, we even named our, our, our cat after him, uh, Foster the Cat. So our, our lives were, you know, um, sort of uh, immersed in, in the Dulles family. And it was a great deal of fun. It was a great deal of fun. Well, I uh, hold to a, my own theory of history, which is that there are certain moments that define truth and uh, our Christian challenge in a unique way. There are certain lives as a part of those epics or moments that uh, really help us to understand what's at stake. 
So when I read about John Foster Dulles, including uh, reading your excellent book, God's Cold Warrior, The Life and Faith of John Foster Dulles, I can't help but to read it thinking that uh, I need to learn from this life um, lessons for my own. And, uh, and that means that sometimes reading uh, about a life of someone who uh, came to very different theological conclusions than my own makes it all the more interesting. And uh, there's a part of me looking at John Foster Dulles that goes, you know, that, that was a very privileged life, an incredibly privileged life. You know, as a teenager, you know, having direct contact with those powerful people in the world, uh, being able to walk into any house, including the White House, with people knowing who you are, um, that, that's a very privileged life. He never had to worry about want or, or deprivation. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, the simple truth of the gospel, the, uh, the eternal truth of God's Word, the reality of the one true living God, uh, that's all I know to bank life on. And uh, the tragedy of so many of these lives is that what they did bank their lives on uh, turned out not to last. And uh, so John Foster Dulles is, uh, is not discussed a whole lot today. And frankly, you know, ironically, even the bust of John Foster Dulles that existed at Dulles International Airport has been now removed. So you don't even see John Foster Dulles in the airport that was named for him. Right. One of the places that we went to, my family and I, we we visited his grave in Arlington, which uh, sits adjacent to the, the USS Maine Memorial in Arlington. You can go see it now today, of course. He's surrounded by uh, people like Leonard Wood, General Leonard Wood. Um, a few plots down from him uh, is um, um, Eisenhower's, uh, the uh, uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court that Eisenhower uh, named to the court in 1950, 1953, Earl Warren. Uh, his grave is just uh, right down from his. And then visiting the grave also of his parents, uh, Alan Macy and uh, his mother, and then his also his sister and her family, especially the one uh, uh, of the uh, Dulleses. Obviously, the graves in Arlington are, you know, uh, very well kept and clean. and Everything's beautiful there. The cemetery in Auburn, New York, that contains the remains of his father and uh, that family, it's a beautiful cemetery. You know, it's a Victorian park-like cemetery. But, you know, it's kind of, um, it's, it's not as well kept, right? And sitting, standing there alongside those graves and seeing, you know, uh, time sort of embrace and take over that graveyard, um, it really gives, you know, sort of a memento mori yeah. uh, to especially when you immerse yourself in a life like that is to say, remember, Oh man, you shall die. That's right. As, uh, as, as, as you are now, I once was, and, uh, as I am now, you one day will be. And it's a, uh, you know, you can definitely learn that when you study a lot of your history. Well, thank you for this conversation, professor Wilsey. It's uh, it was fun to read your book and uh, even more fun to talk with you about it. It has been fun. Thank you so much. Many thanks to my guest, John Wilsey, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you will find more than 150 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. 
For information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.